Okay, folks. Again, we apologize for the technical problem, but we are now back. And I will turn it over to Thomas Sargent right now. Okay, I apologize for the technical problems. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about is the plural of American inflations. Um, and I'm going to talk about North and South. So here goes. Um, so my theme is going to be uh, well stated by this quote from John Taylor, by John Taylor in the late 90s, changing economic theories and opinions about inflation are the ultimate cause of the changes in actual inflation. And I'm gonna give you two variations on that theme. Um, so my theme is there's gonna be theories in play, better and worse, but not perfect. There's gonna be learning by the public and by policymakers. There's gonna be expectations. Uh, you could think of rational as a benchmark, but uh, there's gonna be adaptive, uh, 1990s adaptive. In the tradition of a couple of uh, current Fed presidents, Jim Bullard of, of St. Louis and John Williams of, of New York, who've done extensive work in, in this tradition. Um, and then there's gonna be temptations, uh, almost a biblical uh, theme of temptations. And the temptations that I'm gonna talk about is uh, different temptations in the North and the South. Um, uh, in the North, the stories about the conquests of inflation are gonna all be about temptations to exploit a perceived Phillips curve. In the South, it's gonna be a temptation to use the printing press to finance government deficits. And um, I'm not gonna put these together uh, until perhaps the very end. So my North American story is, is based on this, uh, is mostly based on this Princeton book I wrote in, in 1999 about the conquest of American inflation. Um, but John Taylor and Brad DeLong and Romer and Romer, they had related versions of my story, very close to the story. We're all on the same page. So, so what is that? Um, so uh, this is all about the sweep up of inflation in the 60s and 70s, and then its conquest by, by Volcker and, and, uh, and Greenspan and, and her followers. So, so here's, here's what the story is going to be. Um, and uh, Milton Friedman is going to be, you're going to you're see he pervades this whole story. It's going to be uh, about inferring an incomplete model of the Phillips curve. It's about monetary policy authorities and taking monetary policy actions based on a model and an incomplete model. It's a non-expectational Phillips curve that they had in mind. Um, it's going to be there then experiencing the consequences of those policy decisions taken with that particular incomplete model. And then it's about using the data that came in when they got those consequences to refine the original Phillips curve after detecting a missing variable. And the missing variable uh, is expected inflation. Uh, the, 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 the same variable that Milton Friedman 
in uh, 1967 said ought to be in the Phillips curve, but wasn't. Um, is a very prescient remark because that's a story. So the components, the theoretical components in the background, there's gonna be labor supply and labor demand. There's gonna be, there's gonna be a family of Phillips curves that are indexed by expected rates of inflation. There's gonna be expectations, uh, uh, mostly adaptive in uh, 1990s adaptive. Um, there's gonna be learning and it's all about the government this is in the Taylor, DeLong, Romer and Romer and my story. It's all about the government learning about a non-expectational or expectational Phillips curve, coming to grips with, with trade-offs, if any. And then um, there's gonna be one other force. Okay, so here's a picture that we teach both the undergraduates and graduates still. So the, uh, the idea, the, the Friedman idea was that in truth, there exists a family of Phillips curves. There exists Phillips curves, uh, but there's a family of them. And they're indexed by the, expect, the public's expected rate of inflation. Um, so I've drawn one for expected inflation is low. And so here's the Phillips curve. Here, on this axis is unemployment. Here's Inflation, U is U star for Friedman's natural rate. Uh, and uh, so if, if you had low anchored expected inflation, you, you had that Phillips curve, the, the data would be scattered about that. If you had high expected inflation, it would be like that. Um, that's kind of Friedman's story. So, so this, you know, just to elaborate on this, if you have anchored expected inflation, that anchors expected inflation, then, uh, so I'm, I have expected inflation anchored at 0.02, you know where I got that number, that the data would come in uh, scattered like this. Um, and essentially the gap between expected and unexpected inflation is it's a surprise inflation. And that surprise inflation generates this gap. That's, that's kind of the Friedman, Phelps, Lucas, expectational Phillips curve. But now uh, the data look like that. So, so there seems to be some trade-off, but it's, it's, it's not an exploitable trade-off. And it's only that trade-off if you don't try to exploit it. Um, if you tried to exploit it, um, expectations of inflation will become unanchored and if, if they were totally unanchored, so expected inflation is actually equal to actual inflation, apart from some shocks on average, approximately, then the data would be scattered like this. And it would be a steep Phillips curve. Um, and um, kind of if, if, if I showed you some data, I, I, have, because I have some beautiful uh, actual data where you know, over time, this Phillips curve actually did drift up. And, um, and end up, um, oh my goodness, it, 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 it ended up, um, yeah, sorry. Okay, sorry. It ended up um, looking like this. Uh, so what, what the, what's the message of this is all about, the story is all about the natural rate and surprise uh, inflation. Um, 
And it's all about, the lesson is about the different consequences of anticipated by the public and unanticipated or surprise inflation. With anticipated inflation, there's a vertical Phillips curve and there's no apparent trade-off. With surprise inflation, there's a flat Phillips curve. Uh, there's an apparent trade-off, but it's not exploitable. Um, and so this story about the conquest of, um, of, of US inflation is all about, um, sorry, it's all about, it's all about the, the Fed and the policymakers uh, kind of groping their way toward a correct view of the Phillips curve that teaches them it's not exploitable and then bringing inflation down the way Volcker and, and uh, with, with some pain with the way Volcker and, uh, and, and Greenspan did. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's, 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 there's variations on this story that bring in uh, a bigger or smaller role for rational expectations. Um, but the basic forces are there. So, so now I want to go to South American inflation. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm doing things in a, what I regard as a Chicago, uh, a Friedman Chicago tradition. I'm going to build stripped down. I'm, uh, the work I'm talking about there, they're stripped down models that focus on just a few forces at a time and don't put in everything. Uh, um, so in this model, what's going what's going on in South America? This is influenced by uh, Friedman and Kagan's work about the monetary dynamics of big inflations, and they had a couple key elements. One is there's a demand for real balances. Uh, M over P is an inverse function of the public's expected rate of inflation. Why? You know, um, well, if expected inflation is high, uh, people who hold real balances have an incentive to economize on them. But the level of real balances is the base of an inflation tax. Um, so that's there's a demand function for real balances. That's one component of this body of theory I'm gonna talk about. There's a government budget constraint. Uh, and the key thing is the government finances a deficit by printing money, it uses the printing press. It gives rise to that temptation. So there's inflation tax revenues. Those are real revenues. But now <clears throat> because of this inverse demand function for money, there's a Laffer curve. Um, uh, and there's, there's there's a low tax rate and a high tax rate that generate the same revenue. Uh, we'll see that. And then the last thing is there's theories of expectations and um, partly because of what some earlier speakers talking about, I'm gonna use adaptive because uh, this, this world is gonna be sufficiently complicated that, um, uh, that it's hard to, for people to figure out everything immediately. And, 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 and we're gonna put them in this environment. So that's what goes on, okay. So, um, so with that, okay, um, okay, so good. So, what's so what's going to be in play here? It's a term from Stan Fisher. We have this Laffer curve. There's going to be a slippery side of the Laffer curve. I'll show you what that means. And this theory is going to be it's going to be a fiscal theory of inflation. You know, fiscal in a sense that you know you know. Friedman bought it uh, uh, a long, a long time ago, and um, so we're going to have adaptive expectations in the 
in the 1990s version. And the reason I'm going to use adaptive expectations, even though I admire uh, rational expectations, is this is going to this is going to support a fiscal theory of uh, of inflation. And what I mean by a fiscal theory of inflation now is is this, this simply the idea that bigger sustained deficits. If you run sustained government deficits and you print money to finance them, that's going to bring bigger inflation. That's going to be bigger inflation. And I think of this as the old time religion. Okay. Okay. So, so here's, here's, here's kind of what's the key, the key graph. If I put, uh, you know, it, 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 so this graph's going to underlie the, the Chicago Friedman, um, uh, Laffer curve, Stan Fisher, slippery side of the Laffer curve, fiscal theory of inflation. So, so, so what's here? Uh, I put a pi te dot. That's it. That's the rate of change of of the of the public's expectation of inflation. That there should be an e here, and that, that's a function. This g function of two things. It's a function of the the public's expected rate of inflation, and it's a function of the deficit. Uh, which I've, I've just frozen. So I've frozen the deficit. So if you have one level of deficit, persistent deficit that you're printing with money, there's this curve that tells you the way expected inflation is moving on average if people are using sophisticated adaptive expectations. Essentially, they're just running regressions based on, on the data that comes in. And these arrows, okay, so here's zero. These arrows are pointing, they're telling you which way expected inflation is going. And so if you notice this graph, there's two, there's two zeros. Uh, and those are, those are steady state, roughly average tax rates that these dynamics imply. There's this one, which is the low, that's expected inflation, inflation tax rate. And there's this one, the high inflation tax rate. So just like, you know, Laffer pointed out in a different context, there's, there's two tax rates that finance the same, the same government uh, deficit with printing money. And this one is stable and this one's unstable. Okay. And uh, I like this one. And fortunately this uh, uh, adaptive expectations leads to this. And once you get here, this is very close to a rational expectations equilibrium. I'll just say that. Okay, so here's the, this slide is everything about the fiscal theory of inflation. Uh, um, okay, so so what is if you increase d, if you increase d, what does this curve look like? What happens to this curve? Well, if you, if you do a little math, and the math just involves take a real uh, uh, demand function for real balances of the kind I said, put in the government budget constraint with printing money, and do about ten lines of algebra, and you'll find that this. This curve now looks like this. So if you increase the government larger D, uh, shifts this curve up, and and it causes this low, uh, this stable uh, inflation tax rate to rise, and and you know that embodies the fiscal theory of of, in, of inflation. Um, and this one, this one is is the opposite. It's kind of crazy. So that's that's one reason we like adaptive. That's one reason like Bullard and Williams like adaptive expectations. This, this isn't the only part time when it, uh, this becomes a reasonable one. Okay, so now I'm going to lead up to like a 
we're going to put this to work to study uh, Latin American inflation. Um, and, and this is some work. So I, I showed you that book I wrote, Conquest of American Inflation. I should have titled it Conquest of North American Inflation. So with some pals, we wrote a, another paper. We wrote a paper called The Conquest of South American Inflation. And we're using this type of model. So, so here's, here's, here's kind of the picture. I'm just going to draw this with one D. Okay, so there's my original picture. And now I've kind of colored this. This is the fiscal theory of inflation stable region. And as long as we, as long as we kind of, uh, the shocks, aren't, shocks to the system aren't too big, we're driving toward this, this point. And deficits are, why, why do we get in, uh, high inflation? It's because there's big deficits. But then there can be a shocks which occasionally push you, it pushes expected inflation kind of by, by shocks into this region. Well, if you ever got into this region, inflation, expected inflation just takes off due to the dynamics of learning itself, divorced from the fundamental causes of inflation. This is, this, when you get into this region, uh, this, is, this is Stan Fisher's slippery side um, and, you know, he was interested in this because he was interested in Latin America. Um, inflation takes off. Okay, so that's going to lead to that's going to lead to um, uh, to to our to our an approach to studying South American inflations. So we have this dynamic Laffer curves. There's going to there's going to be what you what I'm going to call a fiscal reform uh, is lower the deficit that has to be financed by the Fed or the, or the, or the central bank. Uh, well, fiscal reforms lower, the lower the, the inflation tax rate, they expand, they expand this stable region and they, um, they contract uh, this nasty slippery side region. So, you know, fiscal reforms are good, quote unquote, if you like low inflation on all three counts. Okay, so my friends, uh, Noah and Tao, um, this is a Fed project, um, Atlanta Fed project, the conquest of South American inflation. So here's what we did in this paper. Um, we used statistical model of the type that I just described, you know, with putting some shocks carefully in and data. And then we use it to infer what happened in a bunch of South American countries from their histories of inflation. And and we ask what caused inflations to ignite and then to stop. And there could be several things. There could be fundamentals, government deficits financed by inflation tax. Those, that's what we call fundamentals. But there could be some inflations that occur just because of de destabilizing expectations and shocks that occasionally divorce inflation from fundamentals. That can happen. Um, and the way it happens is, is because of this, um, these these dynamics I showed you for expected inflation. So uh, that can happen, and they they push you into this escape region where you're you're heading north. And then there's reforms. There's there's a couple kinds of reforms, and and you know South American history, recent last centuries, pockmarked with with reforms that are temporary. So they're fundamental return reforms. They reduce the deficit, and there's cosmetic re re reforms that um, are trying to reset expectations. Um, how you do that, uh, 
we can have a conference about that. How do you set at reset expectations if you don't affect fundamentals? Okay, so, so um, well, we did that and uh, used some statistics, uh, mostly Tau and NOAA. So we used the model and data uh, together. Uh, you know, the, the data never speak by themselves. Uh, you're always using some kind of model. So what we find is for Peru, there were cosmetic reforms, uh, were, were stabilizing inflation uh, temporarily, and then there were eventual fundamental reforms. We detected those. In Bolivia, fundamental changes, government deficits were the culprit, both for the causes and the cures. Argentina and Brazil. Uh, so anyway, so if you read the paper, we talk, uh, you know, we use the model in all of these. And then in Chile, uh, shock volatilities matter. And so, you know, some people in the last session were talking about shock volatilities in a really interesting way that they had increased. Well, something was going on in Chile anyway. So, okay. So I'll just, I'm going I'm to wrap up soon. So you'll, you'll kind of notice the following, the, the, the common sources of, of what I'm talking about are uh, Milton Friedman, if we're going to do a history of thought, both types of models are intimately connected with uh, with work of Al, uh, Milton Friedman uh, and his teachers and students. And some of it's collect, connected with Hayek because these adaptive, ex, these adaptive models um, uh, have an evolutionary co uh, 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 component that's really important. Um, Milton Friedman did other things about uh, uh, the connection between adaptive and rational. Uh, the most sophisticated work about that, and some of it's by Bullard and Williams, by the way, these, these Fed presidents, um, uh, was the, the first work on that was put down by Friedman. I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, okay, finally, um, I, I kind of, I, I kind of, uh, I'm going to credit or blame Friedman on this. Um, I've used separate models for North and South. And, um, You'll notice that. And what about general equilibrium theory? Shouldn't everything be connected? So, so I think of Milton Friedman as a uh, uh, both a really good general equilibrium theorist and a partial equilibrium theorist. And he, uh, one thing that marked his his work was a flair and a good sense for which pieces of a general equilibrium system should you isolate. And which pieces should you put in the background? And you notice, you notice, I've uh, tried to copy that with a different story for North and South for particular purposes. But now I kind of want to question that. And Thomas, I'm just this is Norbert again. I just, uh, if we can, just trying to wrap up over the next Good. ten minutes, and then oh. just Good. to be mindful of the next panel, we're gonna we'll probably just skip uh, skip audience questions. Okay. Good. And move into the next one but okay, okay so i'll have okay so you and i can talk so so i'm almost ready to wrap up so now okay. i just want to say what about u.s inflation today so remember i i'm i i just said i i've 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 uh and shamelessly appealed to to, to milton friedman for this two-part strategy north and south and separating and now we, i want to ask is kind of that a, is that a good idea so um so, you know, Phillips curve in the north, demand function for money, different temptations in the north and south. Um, okay.
so, oops. Okay, so what about the US today? Uh, so I wanna, I wanna just close by reconsidering this, what I call the Friedman isolation strategy. So uh, versus a more general equilibrium approach. So which forces, which forces are in play in the United States tonight, today? Uh, just the North force, forces learning uh, not to exploit or how to, uh, how to, how to cope with the Phillips curve uh, as the data on inflation and unemployment uh, come in and as the curve seems to shift on us for maybe partly because of things that the authorities are doing or the South using an inflation tax uh, to, to finance the government deficit or are both going on in the United States today, uh, heaven forbid. So this is, I'm just gonna point out some thinking that I've done with my friend, George Hall. We wrote this paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the spring, published in the spring. And this is about three world wars and monetary and, and fiscal consequences. And uh, the idea here is we detect patterns that are similar in US participation in three, what we call world wars and uh, take some liberty. Uh, World War One, World War Two, and and the war in COVID, uh, both of which are uh, uh, associated with big shocks to the labor markets, uh, either in the form of draft or in forms of uh, shutdowns, and um, and big surges in government expenditures. That's kind of a common force. So I'll show you some pictures um, about consequences. What this is is I'm just going to. I'm going to show you some pictures and then stop. Uh, here's the log of the price level from the start of three wars. So the, the way this graph does is we took the three wars and we and and from the we had when the war started, and we plot the this is the log of the price level. So you see World War One, see World War Two. You can see the price controls in World War Two. Uh, so you see what happened to the price level uh, after the war. The log of the price level. Look where COVID is. COVID's the blue line. And uh, every month, George and I add a, an observation. And then, uh, for better or worse, it's just creeping along and following that same pattern. Uh, okay, so now here's here's the next thing, and this is going to be a north. Oops, a north. Sorry about this. I need one more. A north start. All right. Okay, there. Here's how are how are creditors of the U.S. government doing? So what these are real. And how do they do in the previous wars, big war wars? So the cumulative uh, real uh, return on holding a portfolio of U.S. government debt from the starts of three wars, well, you can see is um, uh, U.S. creditors uh, in real terms they did badly. They got they got negative. They got in net terms they got gross returns which were far less than one. And um, what you'll see is in the war in COVID. Uh, this blue line is following the experience of our two wars. Um, and now I'll show you one other, I'll show you my final, my final graph. Okay, what this is, is this is, this is a, the US debt GDP ratio uh, in, the, in the 20th century up to, up, up to, up to, uh, up to uh, very recently. And so what you'll see is after World War I, there was a rundown in debt that was paid for in a certain way. Um, after World War II, I was paid down, and and uh, and uh, 
and, and inflation and bad returns to government bondholders played uh, was was part of the source of that rundown. And here's the war on COVID. And if you'll notice uh, in the last um, in the last more than a year, the debt GDP ratio, uh, real debt GDP ratio has been declining. Um, uh, you, you could read in our paper what these blue lines, these have to do with repo and paying interest on reserves, but the debt GDP ratio has been declining. And why has that been declining? Well, the US has been imposing an inflation tax, uh, not only on um, holders of currency, but on holders of uh, US government uh, interest-bearing securities. And uh, that's contributed to this. And, um, and now it's kind of a criticism of, of the whole structure of this talk. Uh, I separated it into this in North and South. And the, uh, the question to ask is, uh, is uh, are some of these experiences, I hope it's not true. I hope this last three minutes is uh, impertinent. Uh, but is it, is it true that some of these, um, these, uh, these considerations are, playing, are, are coming into play? And by the way, this inflation tax, it, uh, it, it, it doesn't just redistribute between government creditors and the government, it contributes between uh, private uh, debtors and creditors. Uh, I'm done, Norbert. Okay, thank you, Thomas. Uh, so again, just we're gonna forego questions for our next panel, which comes up at 2.15. Uh, thank you very much. And we will be back.